and welcome to episode 238 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelton. Today on the podcast, will the real Spider-Man please stand up? Because we'll be reviewing the animated sequel, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. But first, how are you, Scott? Good. We were talking just before we went live how it was, it's been a big weekend. Big, big weekend for me. You know, I'm in my, I'm in my morning era for the, for the end of succession. You know, I didn't have any, any succession to look forward to this weekend. And apparently I made up for it by seeing three films, uh, one of which, of course, we're talking about today, that all got the rarefied air of a heart on an initial review from Letterboxd. I mean, I've seen Rear Window before, so that's, that's different. But um, yeah, also got to see Past Lives. Maybe we'll talk about that on a future episode. I think it's not coming out for a few weeks, at least wide. But uh, yeah, between those two and then seeing Spider-Verse, it's been quite a big movie weekend. Yeah, I think we're going to be talking about past lives probably and this movie for a lot more this year i wouldn't be surprised if if that is the case but yeah um yeah i, I think, think it's so. gonna be about two or three more weeks before i get to see past lives but i definitely want to be that's when i want to be there on on opening opening night for uh if i was on there if i was at the little mermaid on opening night then the least i can do is show up on opening night for this that's um, true i think they said because... june 23rd at the screen okay. yesterday when it's when it goes wide so yeah we'll see well many people felt it was the best film at sundance this year and then um it's been picked up by a24 and um you know the praise has only grown i think as the you know they're doing a slow rollout Mm -hmm. for the film so uh, and i saw the first trailer and thought yeah this looks very much up my alley so sure um seems like maybe you know could kind of be the the after sun or something like that of this year a film like an indie film that wasn't really on our radar and then kind of comes out of nowhere and just blows everyone's socks off um but mm-hmm. maybe i mean i don't know i haven't seen it you have maybe that's uh that comparison's a little bit off base but no i i don't think it's i think they're they're very different films i think that's yeah. like an obvious thing to say sure, it's not like yeah. that's a that's a spoiler thematically like i'm sure yeah they're thematically quite different movies Initial reaction is that I probably like After Sun better, but like you're talking about the highest of high bars yeah, from last year. So it's like, what does that really mean to say that my initial reaction is that maybe it's not quite as good as my number two movie of last year or whatever? <laughs> like, Of course, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, Scott, I was only able to see Across the Spider-Verse this weekend, though. However, I'm still hoping to catch up with uh, You Hurt My Feelings at some point sure. this week, the Nicole Holof Center mm-hmm. um, film. It's still going at my indie theater. So I think I should be able to catch it maybe in a couple days. Um, It's a nice quick watch from what I can tell, but yeah, we're, we're sort of in the weeds a little bit with the, with the summer movie schedule right now. Obviously we had, this was kind of, you know, no spoilers, but a bright spot um, in. Got a little, got a little pun in there too. Look at you. Yeah. Um, But, you know, like, obviously, it's sandwiched between The Little Mermaid last week and Transformers coming up, which is not something I think I will enjoy. But, um, you know, I've been surprised before, I suppose. Sure. Um, But we're all just trying to get to July um, when we can watch Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning for only one week on on IMAX because because then Oppenheimer comes out and Tom Cruise is very upset about it. But that's... That's uh, another conversation for another time, probably. I, you know, well, you've brought it up, so we got to talk about <laughs> it right now. So, I look, I'm I'm always with my with my Lord and Savior Tom Cruise, but this frustration seems a little bit out of a little bit weird to me. 
Like, yeah, bro, your film studio put your movie a week before Christopher Nolan, the man who is like Mr. IMAX. Mm-hmm. Of, like, of course, you weren't going to get any any screenings out of it. Like what? Like, take it, take it up with Paramount for releasing your movie a week before it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the funny thing is, I truly do believe that, like, this is the first time Tom Cruise heard about any of this information. Like, it was like this past week. Like, I, I truly believe he could have gone yeah. without ever hearing any of any of this. Like, wasn't even aware when the movie was coming out. Wasn't aware that, like, you know. <laughs> Yeah, he got he got his pre- he got his like press tour like dates or whatever probably. Yeah. He was like, wait, what? <laughs> it's it totally seems like that could be the situation. And now obviously it's too late to do anything, but he's gonna he's I mean, gonna try to move I mean, the movie to August. I mean, yeah, if anyone could make it happen, I, I say it's too late. But if anyone could make it happen, it's probably Tom Cruise. But I just I just hate seeing, you know, the two maybe biggest defenders of like the theatrical experience on Earth at odds with each other uh, yeah it it just all it all feels kind of strange to me because i honestly i mean i get why he he's complaining about it like i i do understand but it's not like his movie shot for imax you know you know what i mean like nolan's movies like (laughs) the images of him of the imax camera up and like cillian murphy's face and like a hospital bed this week which is hilarious like the man is just like killing his actors with the imax and it's they're so big it's like crazy so he he's doing way more with imax and I kind of get it if Tom doesn't like it. Uh, I'm going through the release schedule in August right now. We got a TMNT Mutant Mayhem on August 4th. Seen the Last Voyage of the times. Demeter on the uh, 11th. Blue Beetle uh, on the 18th. So, you know, I think there's lots of opportunity there to get the IMAX screens for a while if Tom wants to move his move his movie. August seems to be a dead zone. I feel like we were having the same conversation last year. Uh, I think we had but, bodies, bodies, bodies last year, though, so we were a little bit treated. Yeah, yeah. But I guess in terms of big movies. But. That's true. I mean, yeah, it's very rare that a big movie... I mean, is is Blue Beetle technically a big movie? I mean, it's a comic no. book film with a big budget. Surely no one cares about that. Well, yeah. Even some of the true. biggest comic book nerds out there, surely not, they don't actually care about Blue Beetle. I didn't actually see the trailer for that film, but it did. Uh, did a trailer did come out for it a little while back? Yeah, it's quite. And I remember bad. seeing a still from the trailer, and I was like, "This is just Blue Iron Man. Like, what? <laughs> this suit looks just looks like an Iron Man suit. <laughs> like, what's going on? It's quite poor. Yeah, whatever. Uh, but anyway, Scott, let's talk about a comic book film that hopefully was not quite poor, and that is our film today, Spider Man Across the Spider Verse, mm-hmm. the follow up to 2018's Spider Man Into the Spider Verse. Written by Phil Lord and Chris Miller and directed by the new team of Kemp Powers, Joaquin DeSantos, and Justin K. Thompson, Across the Spider-Verse kicks off with Haley Steinfeld's Gwen Stacy grappling with her alternate identity as Spider-Gwen and trying to build some sort of human connection since losing her close friend Peter Parker. While battling the Vulture, Gwen garners the attention of fellow Spider-People Miguel O'Hara, played by Oscar Isaac, and Jessica Drew, voiced by Issa Rae who hop dimensions in order to recruit Gwen into their spider society headquartered on Earth-928. Meanwhile, Gwen's friend Miles Morales, voiced by Shamik Moore, is also having an identity crisis in his home on Earth-1610, where he struggles to keep his role as Spider-Man a secret from his doting parents. When Miles is confronted by a new supervillain known as The Spot, voiced by Jason Schwartzman, a scientist who himself has the power to hop dimensions, Miles knows he will need backup which arrives in the form of gwen and later spider-man paviter prabhakar voiced by karan sony and hobie brown voiced by daniel kaluuya 
As the new team travels across worlds in pursuit of the spot, however, Miles will have to confront not only his role in the ever-growing spider society, but what part, if any, he can play in shaping his own fate, especially when his friends and family are at stake. Scott, Across the Spider-Verse greatly expands on the multiversal world established in Into the Spider-Verse, but at 140 minutes, the longest runtime ever for an American animated film, does this superhero sequel have genuine substance beneath its comic book geek trappings, or is it an overstuffed overload on the senses that collapses under its own weight? Oh, Scott, much, much more the former than the latter for me. I, I was talking actually with friend of the podcast, I think Paul, last week, and he was asking me, like, are you worried about your expectations for this movie? And because I charted him through the journey that I think we both had had around being very excited for this film, seeing that it, that it had been split into two into two movies, seeing that it was delayed like two years. <laughs> like, I think it was literally supposed to originally come out in 2021. And then most recently at CinemaCon, the, the, the passing comment that they were still working on finishing touches of the film. And that was only, you know, a month before it's release date, a month before now. And so I charted this journey for him about like the, the highs and lows of my expectations for this movie. But I said, the initial reviews that come out, I am like all the way back in. Like, it seems like everyone is really loving this movie. And they were right. This film is incredible. You talked about it building on and expanding some of the stuff that it sort of brings into the fold. It's sort of universe building or multiverse building even. Um and into the Spider-Verse. And to start with, I guess it is just, first off, just like such an incredible feat of animation and storytelling to be able to manage to keep hold of and within its grasp, all these different worlds. Like you mentioned like three different Earths in in in, in your description and your opening. They're not right the there. only ones. Yeah. yeah. And you're not the only one. Um, and I just, I was sort of just mouth agape i think watching the opening bit which is on earth 65 i think that's the one that gwen's earth is and sort of the, the watercolor animation um sort of the almost like it's almost like kaleidoscopic too because the colors are changing constantly and then you you flip back to earth 1610 which is the one that we saw and, and sort of were introduced to and into the spider verse that's miles morales's universe and then it goes on and on from there and we see you know two or three more different universes from there throughout the rest of the film and all the while it, it's introducing you to spider people from all across the multiverse from hundreds of different worlds and its animation sort of reflects all the different worlds in it. it it doesn't just sort of create some sort of monotone or homogenous view of all these different worlds it fully embraces the fact that these People are from all different worlds. And so just from a baseline animation level, it's like crazy to see some of this stuff. I think it, it's just one of those things where it, it feels like it's it's breaking a set of rules about animation and delivering you new rules and making you wonder why these weren't the rules the whole time. Right. This idea that you can be that you can be just so fundamentally creative with your animation style. Obviously, that's a lot easier said than done. It's very difficult to, I think, deliver on those promises. And I think we saw how difficult it was to deliver in there, sort of pushing back of the film two years and splitting apart into multiple movies. It, it became unwieldy for them, clearly, at some point. But they delivered on their promises. They delivered on the expectations. 
And from a storytelling perspective, as you sort of thwip through all these different worlds with the different spider people that we're following, I just think it's so remarkable that it's able to tell a coherent story. Is there some like sort of comic booky superhero type, um, not MacGuffins, but like science that you need that you need to sort of shrug at and, and let ride by at, at times, maybe. But I I think I was just so enthralled by the world that it was building that I managed to follow along pretty neatly and was never really slowed down or sidebarred by not really feeling like I understood what was going on. I think it, it, it does manage to piece together what could be a pretty convoluted plot and, and or maybe not with 100% success, does manage to keep it simple enough to follow on your own on the first viewing. But overall, I think the story was super compelling. I think Miles as a character is someone that, you know, obviously is quite different than you and I. He's an Afro-Latino and growing like in he's 15 years old so he's like a freshman or sophomore in high school he's probably a sophomore in high school and nevertheless it feels like a lot of the things that he sort of feels across the spectrum of emotions in this movie and i think that he he does really experience a full spectrum of emotions over the course of this film one of the things that i thought was um maybe kind of flies under the radar about how many different emotions this film sort of made me feel and i was like 100 percent able i feel like to empathize and relate and and feel what he was going through and still just sort of be awed by everything. And I think that there's just a sense of wonder, um, almost like childlike wonder that comes along with, with so much of this movie while still creating a compelling story at the same time. There's a lot of new, there's a lot of new characters. Obviously we have miles and you have Gwen and Peter B Parker, who comes back for maybe a, a smaller role in this film than the previous one. But other than that, like most of the characters are, are new you got Miles' parents who get a lot more airtime in this film than the last one. So it feels like, not that they're new characters, but you're actually getting to know them more in this one. And the villain, uh, Jason Schwartzman's like knocking it out of the park, man. He's so locked in on this role. And I was kind of curious because we, we just watched a lot of movies with Jason Schwartzman in them for the Anderson countdown that we just finished recording and is coming out the last few episodes of the next few weeks before Asteroid City. And I was like, Jason Schwartzman voicing a villain in a comic book movie. I'm, like, I'm not sure about this, but I mean, he's totally right for it. And I think he's absolutely locked in and it's got, I love this film. It's been living rent free in my head since Thursday night. When I saw it, I saw it again yesterday. It didn't really step down at all for me on the rewatch. And it's one of those things where sort of like what you're describing at the beginning with mission impossible, only getting the IMAX and premium screens for the next few days because transformers will be taken. And I'm like, do I squeeze in like a third showing? before thursday and i mean right now i think i plan to it, it, it's just that kind of movie in my letter in my second well the, my only review that i actually did on letterbox because i just logged it the first time i saw it i was talking about this film just sort of immediately hits the register for me of films like dune of avatar the way of water of films that i just sort of instantly want to go and revisit as soon as i as soon as the credits roll like as soon as i'm walking out of the theater i'm like when can i see this movie again even though it's two hours and 20 minutes, even those other films that I just mentioned are even longer than this one, right? Like, it's just sort of the experience where I just want to immediately repeat it. I want to see all the details that I missed on the first watch because there's so many details in the film. And, you know, maybe it's a criminal that I haven't mentioned it yet, but Daniel Pemberton's score is like absolutely unreal in this film. Um, I recently, right before, I guess, on Wednesday, rewatched Into the Spider-Verse. And I think 
obviously the soundtrack gets a lot of airtime, I think. People talking about how good the soundtrack is in that movie, but the score sort of also flies a little bit under the radar, I think, in this. And in this film, and I think that maybe what it trades down in soundtrack that Daniel Pemberton is allowed to really show his full range and an incredible, an incredible musical score for for this film. And you mentioned early on that you think we're going to be talking about this film for a while. I who knows if we'll be we'll still be talking about this at the end of the year. I'll certainly still be thinking about it at the end of the year. They all say that much. Yeah, you know, I posted my review after the film, Scott, and I did not give it a rating, uh, mm-hmm. which is something that I don't usually do. Um, but actually recently have done a little bit more just because, uh, you know, sometimes I, I recognize that I do have lots of competing thoughts immediately mm-hmm. in coming out of a movie and, um, you know, can't always process that into a star rating. Um, but, you know, I, I posted a couple of, of quick thoughts that had something to do with the ending of the film, which is which we'll talk about. But basically is one thing that does give me the one thing that does give me pause about this whole experiment. Um, and I think some people interpreted it as me not having enjoyed the film. So I just want to say up front uh, that I definitely loved the movie. Um, yeah. And Wait, did uh, people like text you after and be like, you hated the film? I did get a couple of messages that were like, what do you know? What do you mean by this? Like, was it really oh. like, do you really think like it was unsuccessful or, you know, stuff like that? So oh, interesting. Um, just that's not that's not how I read your review when I read it. Yeah. And we talked about it. And once I explained it, I don't think anyone was like, uh, I mean, I think everyone was like, OK, I get it now. But um, but anyway, we'll, we'll talk about, you know, my misgivings, which in their own way, aren't even misgivings really about the film itself. It's more just sort of my anxiety about what comes next. But um, but anyway, I loved the film, Scott. Um, I, you know, found it so exciting and unique and daring yeah. to watch, um, as everyone has said about this movie and as everyone said about Into the Spider-Verse. I mean, I loved Into the Spider-Verse too. It was my number two film of that year. It's now my number three, but still for a comic book movie to go that high in 2018 um, for me is, you know, it says a lot. It just feels so much different than anything else that is being offered in the world of comic book or blockbuster cinema, you know, if you want to go even broader with it. Um, and, you know, I did start out the movie and at least with, with Miles's story, when that gets kicked into gear a little bit after, you know, that opening sort of sequence with Gwen and I was like, okay, like, this is great. Like, I love the animation. I really enjoy the character of Miles, but we are hitting the same Spider-Man story, right? Like Spider-Man is caught between, you know, his personal life, his family, friends, all of that. Yeah. And his duties as Spider-Man and his uncle. Dies. I've seen this before. And especially after something like No Way Home, right, which unites all of these different eras of Spider-Man in yeah. a pretty satisfying way. It's like, OK, but like, do we really need to do this story anymore? Is there anything more to get out of the story, mm-hmm. especially because I see this as something completely separate from, you know, what the MCU is doing and um just you know completely different from everything else like i was saying Mm -hmm. um do we really need to go through these same spider-man beats and i just needed to have a little more faith in the movie scott because once you get into it once you get deeper into the movie um and it starts revealing what it is really about um 
that's exactly the the ideas that the movie is grappling with right um do mm -hmm. we tell the same story over and over again or is there are there ways to tell different stories and to not yeah. lose the ethos of what this is of what spider-man in this instance is um, to not have the world fall apart when you do it yes and uh you know obviously it it works on the the micro level of just this movie and miles um you know being confronted with the canon so to speak which is something that gets revealed later in the movie um but also just in the on the macro level in the greater world of um blockbuster storytelling and franchise storytelling and um look you know it's been talked about more than any film in history perhaps at this point but it's worth bringing up again that i couldn't help but think of the last jedi right when watching uh some of the the stuff that happens in the later um stages of this movie and again in particular the discussion of the canon and breaking free of the canon possibly and breaking free of the familiar story beats um it was just so i was getting so excited scott watching like this stuff happening because it was it was going exactly where i hoped it would go and yeah. again i mean obviously just on a technical level it's it's incredible to behold you have um lord and miller's writing which i think um mm -hmm. You know, there's some of the the smartest writers out there when it comes to to this sort of stuff. And, you know, they're able to just balance so much. You're talking about all of these, you know, different worlds and characters and everything that's getting introduced um, and they never lose the plot. I mean, it's it's very it is very similar, obviously, to the Lego movie at times, um, which is, you know, the animated film that they made their name. I mean, I guess they had Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, but, um, you know. I think that really sort of refined their style was the Lego movie. And even, you know, there's the scene where they go to the earth, whatever, where all the spider society, where the spider society is and all the other spider men are and women and people and animals and objects are hanging out. And um, it's very reminiscent Peter, of Peter the parked car. Yeah. Absolutely incredible. <laughs> incredible. It's stuff. very reminiscent of the scene in the Lego movie where they go to cloud cuckoo land. They meet all the master builders. Like again, they're, they're able to just sort of balance all of this, do these little quick little comedic moments and everything, but there's always that emotional undercurrent in their films. And, you know, there's, there's substance to it. Like these movies are trying to mean something. Um, and that goes a long way with me as somebody who, again, increasingly feels like, what is going on in the MCU, for example, is just completely perfunctory, meaningless, has mm -hmm. no, you know, artistic value really. Um, yeah. I'm just going to tell my kid that, that this is, about. this is actually, this is all the MCU is <laughs> pretty much. Um, yeah. But Scott, and I mean, I guess this is where I will say spoiler alert, I guess, because I mean, look, people know there's going to be another film in the series, right? I do want to mention how this film ends in particular, which is probably the spoilery part of it to some extent. Mm -hmm. But basically, um, again, I was loving the movie. I was loving the direction that they were taking the story in. We have Miles in the third act setting out. He's going to break free right of the canon. He is going to try and um, save his father, right? Like, again, it's revealed that the story beat of 
Spider-Man's family member dying is something that is, you know, inherent to all Spider-Man and something that has to happen or the entire world is going to be thrown, like all of these worlds, the entire universe is going to be thrown into chaos, basically. There's going to rip a hole in the the multiverse um, is essentially what he's told by Miguel O'Hara. And um, so he sets off, you know, we get some reveals that we can talk about and at a very dramatic and, you know, pivotal moment in the film, it ends, right? And it hits you with a to be continued. And that's it. There's no credit scenes or anything like that. It's just to be continued. And we know that beyond- You're, the you're happy that there's no credit scenes though, right? That's something that, that yes, is a positive yes. for you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Beyond the Spider-Verse is coming next year. Um, well, we'll which, see. We'll see if it comes yeah. next year. <laughs> yes. Anyway, it's supposed to be the conclusion of this trilogy, right? Um, I mean, it's not just going to be a trilogy. Let's just be perfectly honest about that. We I, mean, are, I think know, that, I think they have been talking about a, a spinoff for a while. A, a Spider-Gwen. A Spider-Gwen spinoff, been. yeah. If that's what you but, mean by that. I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I mean, th- this was just the thing to me. And again, maybe I'm being irrational and overly cynical and everything about this. I probably am. I usually am. Um, but... You know, again, everything I'm talking about this movie is so different. The movie is literally about breaking free of what everyone else is doing and all the story beats and all the, you know, everything that we're used to and familiar with. And yet I couldn't help but be struck with familiarity at the end of the movie when it's like, okay, well, yeah, of course, there's going to be another one. This was setting us up for another one. And then we're going to get to the third movie and maybe that maybe it's going to be it's going to quote unquote end right this is going to end the trilogy but as long as this thing keeps making money there's going to be another one probably at some point and nothing you know means anything anymore in these movies no nobody's dead nobody you know the story beats we can always just backtrack and bring back the emperor and whatever we want to do and again, yeah, yeah, maybe you, really, you really have entered your crazy cynical zone. I, I will say with that take, I, <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I feel pretty confident see, saying that <laughs> you see it everywhere, though. Like, I mean, it's not this is not just Star Wars. Right. Again, we we just Fast and Furious, you know, just came out a, a few weeks come, ago. And come on. <laughs> Fast and Furious. Scott, it's one of the biggest franchises out there. Like, I, I don't think it can be ignored in this conversation. And um, mm, sure. You know, again, those movies, are they've brought back people who were previously dead. Right. Uh, I'm just expecting them to bring back Paul Walker at some point at this point, like quite literally resurrects the man. But anyway, it's um, actually the biggest decade long bit of all time. He wasn't actually ever dead. He's just been in hiding to come out for fast 11 or 12 or whatever. But it's just and it's reached a point, obviously, of no return. Now, maybe they were fun at one point, the movies, but like it's just so tired and lazy now and everything. And of course, I don't want to believe that any of that will happen with spider-verse i don't believe any of that will happen with spider-verse i really don't i think that everyone involved with this is too good and cares too much about this yeah but there is a twinge of of something there of anxiety again when the film ends like that and it's like oh boy i feel like i've seen this before um i just really don't want this thing which i think is really so unique and amazing to eventually overstay its welcome And, you know, the other thing is, of course, I truly do believe they're going to be able to tie off these storylines in a satisfying way in the third film. Um, 
but there's no ending here, right, Scott? Like it, it literally ends in media race. Um, and so we don't know exactly what the, the culmination of those ideas about the canon and storytelling and everything. We don't know ultimately what the movie is going to say. And so while I loved the experience of watching it, I recommend it to everyone. I want to see it again. Um, like, I feel like there is, I have to withhold part of my judgment until I see the third film, because I have to see how they, how they round it all off. And I guess the, the, the highest praise I will give of this movie and the, the true marker of its quality for me is that I have 100% confidence that they are going to round it off in a satisfying way, right? After this movie, it's clear that the first film was no fluke. They're do, they're going about this the right way. They have interesting ideas on their mind. They have interesting things to say. There's an actual emotional weight to these films. And, you know, much like we talked about with Avatar, The Way of Water, I think is the film, again, which comes to mind. There are so much care and passion that is clearly putting it, put into the craft of this this film um, and of, of the original as well. So um, all the pieces are there, Scott. I believe that the puzzle is going to be completed. Mm -hmm. I just need to see it completed, right? I need to see the complete image before sure. I can say, you know, bravo, 10 out of 10 standing ovation. Yeah, look, look. I, I think your anxieties around how the franchise or sub-franchise, however you want to think about it, will be treated longer term beyond the third film and the Spider-Gwen spinoff if it does come to fruition. I think that's understandable. I think it's totally normal in, in, in the current film climate to be thinking about that and to be concerned about that. One of the reasons why this particular instance of it just doesn't bother me is that I like the, the film was conceived as one movie, right? Like, and then it became so thematically broad and expanded beyond reason that they split it into two because they can't release a four and a half hour film into theaters. Um, like period, let alone an animated film, let alone, you know, wait six years or whatever it would be ideally right to to put those out i think because of that like i'm just not like kind of like you were saying at the end there like i'm not really concerned about part th about beyond the spider-verse for that reason i think the sort of global like the higher level global anxieties that's fine i just i also think that it's like with this concern that you're talking about about wanting to like pause and wait for beyond the spider-verse to really render a judgment from a story perspective sure okay i, I get that but it's also it's not like movies that aren't the ones we're talking about. It's not like movies outside of the MCU have put it to, to be continued. Like Dune did it two years ago, and that's like one of the best, and that it was the best film of that year for me, yeah. right? Like you gave it five stars as well. I'm not just I'm just I, I'm just citing it as an example. Like Lord of the Rings is widely considered to be, you know, three of the greatest films of all time. Let alone like when you put that together into a trilogy, right? Like those films were essentially slapped with to be continued on the end of them, and it's different because like, you know, like, you know, the subject matter, right. That's, that's adapted from works. You could just like, go pick a book off the shelf and read it. Right. So you kind of, from the story perspective that you're talking about, obviously there's, there's a, there's a difference there. Cause you don't know how this story is going to end, but just like fundamentally, like I didn't, I didn't get stressed out by that at the end of the film. I didn't like, 
have like some skepticism about like the the actual exercise or product yeah. of it for that reason. But the the higher level anxieties that you're expressing, I think those kind of make sense. Now, whether the story comes together, it it would be so <laughs> it would be so Rise of Skywalker for them to like double back on the canon stuff because like yeah. the film just like on a meta level goes so far out of its way to be like into the spider verse was the anomaly of comic book movies like miles is the original anomaly is what they literally call him in the film yeah and and to then position miguel and sort of all this like sort of you know elite group of spider people trying to prevent miles from disrupting the canon like they are positioned as the antagonists of the movie and so if, if they do go on right into the th- into beyond the spider verse and then like somehow redeem that or double back on that in a way that is very straightforward and not at all nuanced like that would be i mean that would just be so crazy to me like that would it could happen i'm not saying it can't happen and, but like it would be so crazy for that to happen it would and i mean and these ideas are in the lego movie as well too i mean again going back to the lego movie some of these ideas sure. about you know who is the special right what does that yeah. mean well the reveal is the special is just the normal guy right it's just Emmett and everyone can be the special and sure. um expressing yourself in a creative way is more important than um conforming to structure and rules and what everyone tells you that you mm-hmm. need to do right you need to build the lego set in a particular way right that's what how yeah. will ferrell's human character in the movie is that's his mindset um yeah. and but actually, you know, it's more about just expressing yourself. And I think, again, those ideas are being played out now on an even grander scale, right? In the context of this beloved property, maybe yeah. like the most beloved comic book property now. And it's this or Batman. Yeah, it's amazing. It's yeah, it's just amazing to see. Like, I hope everyone understands what they are trying to do here with this right like with the with the storytelling here yes yeah, so, so some people won't but i think that's actually one yeah. of the remarkable things about the film right like it sort of is able to operate in this space like like many of the best animated films and best it, it's more of an animated thing because animation there is this mental stereotype that it's like kind of for kids right so it's like you talk more in the of this about this kind of stuff with kids like it is the kind of movie that could be watched and enjoyed by anyone and just take it for face value, and it's this incredible experience yeah. that you're going to be walked through. But then, if you're if you're interested in going deeper than that, if you're interested in something more than just surface level superhero comic book sort of extravaganza, which is a very satisfying experience by itself, there's there's even more there for you to contemplate and think about. Especially if you're you know, especially like yourself, myself, getting there included, like feeling really burnt out by the formula of. IP like not just comic book films, although that obviously that's the easiest thing to point to, but like franchise filmmaking is like very difficult right now like there's only a few out there that really excite me at this point because i don't feel like they are you know creatively um running on fumes so to speak so it's it sort of operates in this sort of fantastic space i think where it it hits all four quadrants in a in a more like business type speak yeah uh i i firmly agree with you on that um it's exciting to think about what could be next, but yep. there just, again, there is that anxiety because, because of how the market is saturated with these franchises and these 
serialized things, mm-hmm. right? Like everything is building towards what's next and what's in the five-year plan, right? What's in, what is Kevin Feige cooking, right? Um, sure. and, or what and, is James Gunn cooking in his 10-year plan? Yeah, exactly. Everyone's been talking about for the DCU. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I just don't want it to get to that point where we are constantly just thinking about what is next. Their stories can end, right? I think that sure. is maybe the ultimate point of what I'm trying to say is there can be an end point. Characters can die. They can go away. That is fine. There, there are stories that can reach a natural end point. And yes, I understand their money is, if there's money still to be made, these people are going to want to go make it, but can, can they go exploit that? in a different Spider-Man sub-property. Though. Yes. Can they, can they just go do that with Tom Holland? Like we know that they want to go do. I'm just giving you my perspective. And yeah, yeah, yeah. My perspective is I don't care about these people making money. I'm sorry. I don't, I want to see a good story being told. And totally. a good story is one that has an ending eventually. So part of the um, journey is the end as Iron Man would say. Exactly. exactly. And then that journey didn't end. So <laughs> yeah, it kept going. Sad. <laughs> I mean, again, that sums it all up right there. I think. Sure. But, uh, Scott, we've talked a lot about general and then more specific impressions of the film, but sure. um, let's mention the voice cast. It yeah. is, you know, wide. It is varied. Again, we, you, a lot of the names have come up already. You have the returning people like Shamik Moore and Haley Steinfeld and Brian Tyree Henry. Um, you also have the new additions like Jason Schwartzman, like Oscar Isaac, Issa Rae, um, Greta Kaluuya. Lee. Yeah, Daniel Kaluuya. Uh, Andy Samberg pops up briefly in the film um, as Ben, as the Scarlet Spider. And yeah, I mean, there's there's various other cameos and stuff like that that happened throughout the film. But Scott, sure. who stood out to you? Yeah, I, I mean, look, I think Haley Steinfeld, it has to be said, is, is the standout in the cast for me. Maybe it's because she has this sort of 20 minute opening sequence that you you gave a good sort of rundown of in your primer. But the story sort of starts with her and in some ways it also ends with her in a, in a way in this particular film. But I, I just think that you get so much, like it almost feels like sometimes this, like not even sometimes, maybe even most of the time the story is being told from her perspective. Like you get this whole notion that she's almost, almost like some sort of narrator, like almost like she's journaling about what is happening. Right. And the sort of 20 minute opening scene here just gave gave me a real attachment even more than the first film did to her character. And there's just, I just felt like there was just so much soul and like X factor in the voice performance that just sort of sucked me in really got me to feel and, and sort of understand what she's going through first on her own earth and earth 65. But then later on, when you start to understand her role in the sort of greater context of, of Miles's story and, and what's playing out sort of, sort of live as it goes in the film. And I think you really, you like, you just, I just really felt that in the performance. And I think she really, her voice role, uh, her performance really is a huge part of that. So if I had to pick one person out of the cast, it would be Haley Steinfeld, but I could go on for a while about people that I really appreciated. I mean, I saw Daniel Cluey was in this movie before I went into it. So I, I did know that he was going to be in it. I did not know he's going to be full Cockney uh, in the film. And that was a, a real, a real treat. 
he's basically re- using his real accent which oh is yeah totally. that he never yeah. gets never gets to do in film so it's just it yeah. is kind of jarring i guess if you're not familiar with it but yeah he is spider punk yeah you know one of the more creative sort of spider-man um that we meet in the same way that you know we had like the the obviously uh nicholas cage as spider-man noir we had john mulaney as spider ham mm-hmm. uh in the first film i would say he yeah. kind of follows in in line with uh you know the the more creative um totally archetypes there creative versions but um yeah no i think the whole cast is is awesome I, yeah i think gwen is kind of the the standout character maybe in the film maybe even more so than than miles and again i think thinking so. about this a spider gwen film i mean yes i'm absolutely in on that idea it's just where is the end point is there an end point that's that's all my concern is but yeah i think Haley steinfeld is great i do think everyone else is really good too i i you know i think you mentioned the parents yeah being more important in this film and that's luna lauren velez as rio as miles's mom and brian tyree henry as jefferson as miles's dad um yeah rio laura laura luna lauren velez has i mean the scene that she has with miles underneath like the the water like in the middle oh, of that that scene in the water tower yes yeah great. in the water towers it's like unreal what that like I, that scene was in the trailer and i'd seen the trailer so i'm not we don't have to go down the road of like what are we doing in our trailers people what are we doing um but that was like such an emotionally forceful scene like i just really you sort of feel like not in in this is like this comes off as more negative than than i mean it but like you kind of feel that like all the different sides of this sort of relationship of between miles and his parents are just like, everything's just sort of strained. And like, there's this moment where Rio just sort of like tries to come, come to the table and say, you know, this is, this is, this is kind of exhausting. Like we love you so much. We just want what's best for you. Can we work together on it? I just really like, that was such like an emotionally hefty scene that I think her performance in particular was like such, such a standout in that. And I think the, she's also good in, the ending when he reveals to her that he's spider-man but she actually doesn't know who spider-man is so um because it's not her yeah because it's the different universe yes yeah but it's yeah. still her voice yeah yeah yeah, yeah. she was like <laughs> yeah. uh is this where you like dress up as your favorite character or whatever yeah <laughs> that i thought so that fun. was good yeah but yeah the 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 parent performances are really good and you know they they do a really good job with those characters in the same way that yeah um because this is this is a different aspect of the story in some regards right it's not aunt may aunt may is not i mean aunt may is briefly a character in the first movie but um, not related not related to miles though yes it it it, we're we are seeing parent characters right we're not the surrogate parents right that aunt may and uncle ben are and that we are used to seeing and obviously the representation aspect of it um is is part of you know what makes it unique too and again just going back to the overarching commentary of the movie about breaking free from established norms and storytelling i mean the the representation part of this comes into that too i think that's what's so cool is that there's so many different layers to it's not it's not just about oh telling you know comic book stories or whatever telling these familiar stories it's also about you know, we can make Spider-Man Afro-Latino. We can make Spider-Man blah, 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 blah. Any, you know, any, any version. Yeah. 
anyone can wear the mask, right? Like the original film says. Um, mm-hmm. So it just, it goes in so many directions. But as far as the cast, yeah, I think everyone's excellent. I, I agree with you earlier. I think Jason Schwartzman is a great villain. Oscar Isaac also. Yeah. Is we got to talk good. about Oscar Isaac probably. Like we do. Yeah, he's good. Him. This like tortured figure, right? Of Miguel O'Hara who... Um, just is trying to maintain order in despite being a spider-man right despite us being inclined to root for him because he's a spider-man he he wants to maintain order in this whole universe and that means he has to try and stop miles from saving his father because he believes that that is going to you know kill thousands millions however many other um by blowing up the multiverse basically it's going to destroy his world yeah yeah um so i think he he was great you know great sort of character to have at the heart of all this and will be interesting to see what happens with that character in the future yeah Um, he's he's broken his uh his comic book movie duck i guess can we can we say that comfortably (laughs) yes yeah yeah i guess he had i mean it's not a movie but he had moon knight but yeah, I mean, he had Moon Knight. Didn't was he not in a DC movie? I thought he was in a DC movie, but maybe not. Who even knows? How yeah, I mean, so look, he, he had a wild ride in the Star Wars, so I guess uh, he did. He had to look. Yeah, again, that some one. some nice little irony of him popping up here, given what I think the movie is trying to say. But... Oh, of course, he was Apocalypse. That's the one I was thinking of. He was in. Oh, he was, sure. He sure, was Apocalypse yeah. and X Men Apocalypse. That's right. That's... Sure. 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 Uh, but he's great. Everyone's great in the movie. Um, the voice cast, they all put in their shifts. Um, it's not, you know, nobody's phoning it in, which is basically all you can ask for in, in a voice cast. Scott, you mentioned the animation as uh-huh. well. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously a lot of it is sort of told in the comic booky style of the first movie, but we do see some, you know, variations on that. We see they go to India at one point and there's a more... Well, they don't Kinetic. go to India. It's just uh, it's just Manhattan yes. in Indian form. <laughs> they go Boom to Spider in. India. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but um, sure. But but um, you know, there's a more kinetic animation style there. Oh, yeah. Um, and at various other you know points in the movie, they're flirting with different types of animation. Totally, it's pretty spectacular. Even if you don't enjoy the movie, like it's just absolutely undeniable to me. In the same way that Avatar, you know, is like an amazing visual experience even if you can't get on board with the storytelling there um it's just undeniable did you feel the same scott you're not going to try to deny it i assume i will not be denying it i will be standing it i think is what the kids say these days yeah no i i loved it i and you've you've called out a lot of i think the really obvious things one of the softer notes is just again gwen's world the sort of watercolor kaleidoscopic way that her, that the colors sort of cycle through in her world based on either emotions or, or whatever it might be is honestly visually completely arresting. I think it was really inspired to start with that to sort of just immediately set the standard of like, yes, we're going to show you Miles World in a second, but this is also what we have in mind for this kind of movie. Also set in that this is not a world that they fully visit. There's like one shot from it briefly, but the, the sort of, um, da vinci vulture like the whole renaissance style like that sort of animation yes. for that character was just like i mean it was like what the hell this is incredible um 
it starts on such a high note in that respect. But yeah, like everything is just sort of crazy. And then you see all these sort of different animation styles stack on top of each other because then you have all these characters from different worlds. Like you have like you have Gwen, you have Miles, you have Hobie, who's like his own art style. Like he's sort of like almost like, uh, you know, puts off this his own animation style, like everything he touches then starts to turn around him. And it's, it's just like very cool. And they do that for a ton of different characters. And I think they're like the most visually stand like the visual standout is probably Gwen's world from like a world perspective. But the sort of techno futuristic world of Nueva York 2099 uh, Earth, whatever that one is. I don't night. Which one is that? 928. I, I think it's 928. That um, sounds right. Like that's like different to the fact they're shooting on this like train to the moon, like this tram to the moon and things like that. And I just think that it's sort of just visually inspired. I mean, the whole film is inspired, but like, again, I sort of, sort of like I was saying my higher level thoughts, it's kind of crazy that this film just feels like it sort of breaks a lot of rules of animation and just sort of hands you a new set of rules that you're never not going to think about when you watch it. It's the kind of thing. It's not going to ruin animated films for me. Just like, I don't think maybe it will. I don't think avatar the way of water is just going to ruin every movie with water in it for me ever again. Maybe, maybe it will. Maybe I'm, I said that and then I'm like, well, a little mermaid did suck, didn't it? Um, and that but, wasn't because of Avatar, though. That's true. Yeah, no, touche. We'll see what we think of uh, Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom or whatever later this year. <laughs> You'll see. <laughs> yeah, no, I won't. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. But I think that the whole endeavor is sort of puts creativity in the genre and the animated films on notice. I don't think you have to have 30 different animation styles to be creatively inspired. But I think it's showing you that we don't need to be complacent with animation, right? And I think that's this, this film is sort of, it has so many things going for it, but its animation is certainly near the top of the list. Yeah, I, maybe this is the most me comment I could make, but all sure. I can think about is like, if you gave Richard Linklater like the hundreds of millions of dollars to make a superhero <laughs> movie, this is probably what it would look like, right? Uh because he loves. Nah, man, he just rotoscope it. You're wrong. He would rotoscope. Well, that that's what I'm saying. Is there there are times though when the animation here recalls rotoscope. Like if I had to yeah. uh, compare it to any sort of traditional animation style, I feel like that's like the closest thing that comes to mind at certain time at certain points. But um, anyway, of course, I just had to make that comment. But yeah, I don't have anything really to add. Like like I said, it's it's undeniable. Like people don't need to sit here and listen to us wax poetic about it because they're going to see and they're going to be amazed for themselves i think about what this film is able to achieve in the visual department you know again it it's two hours and 20 minutes it's the longest american animated film um I, there was all this conversation about oh man this must mean that the animators were like worked to the bone right and like probably had a horrible work environment like trying to put this whole thing together maybe Maybe they did, but the end product was really good. That's all I can say. I can't speak to what went on behind the scenes, but um, they put out a great product, Scott. I can I can say that much. Um, yeah, they had a, a thousand people working on this movie, which is probably more than any that's than it's ever worked on an animated film. Quite a lot. Um, I don't know if that's you know backed up by by data, but that's just that's a lot of people. Like that is a lot of people. They all did their jobs. It seems that way. Scott, uh, any sort of final thoughts, I guess, on the story? Um, and, you know, again, we've talked about a lot of the big ideas and 
this idea of there being a canon and certain things that have to happen in Spider-Man. I mean, I guess it's worth discussing a little bit more what happens at the end of the movie, right? Sure. The fact that um, Miles believes that he is being sent back to his home world, but instead is sent to Earth 42, I think it is, which yep. is where the spider that bit him is from, right? Yep. And that created this anomaly in the first place, right? Because he was not supposed to be bitten. By His world spider. already had a Spider-Man. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then he was. And, and, you know, again, that created the anomaly. So he's sent back to Earth-42. Um, he believes that he's going to try and save his father, but then he realizes, oh, I'm not even in that world. Um, and he ends up being captured by the Prowler, which turns out to be, in fact, uh, him. Miles. The yeah. Miles Morales, who is it exists in that Earth 42, and he has become a villain, um, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have his uncle, right? Aaron uh, Mahershala Ali, who shows yep. up and, you know, has, in this other universe. Yeah. Yes. Right. And and they have some some dialogue. But um, Scott, what and then and then, of course, again, what the what, the place where the movie chooses to end. Right. Uh, Miles has been captured by the Prowler, Gwen and um, the other spider men that she has united on her team are. I guess, are they in Gwen's home earth or yeah they are right because i don't know no, i'm no. sorry they're they're in no. miles's home they're in miles's home world right because they've i don't gone think there we, to look- i don't actually think that we know where they are they're they're going somewhere but we don't know where they're going okay because she like but assembles anyway, she, them all she like goes she universe finds, to universe and assembles them hobie gives her the watch thing or whatever that allows her that he to, made that he made himself yeah. yes that allows her to jump between dimensions and Basically, wherever they are at the end of the movie, they're all setting off and they're going to go try to save Miles because Gwen has talked to her father and basically they have come to an understanding about her role as Spider-Gwen, right? And so now Gwen believes, right, that she has broken the canon, right, because her father is going to be okay. Um, we'll see and yes and so now she, they're setting off to help miles because um if she can break the cannon then allegedly he can too thoughts on all of this scott a lot going on a lot of different worlds a lot of different characters you know it's a multiverse movie in the sure. end yeah look i i think it's unclear whether whether she's broken the cannon with her dad her dad is no longer a captain and so it doesn't conform to the cannon story or whatever does that mean she's broken canon? I'm not sure, but I think her like anxiety about her father dying has been put at ease in that. Yeah. But yeah, maybe she's broken canon. Maybe she's not. It wouldn't surprise me if they they we learn a little bit more about that in and beyond, like what what that means overall. Because I have a feeling that that subplot is not wrapped up fully yet. And then yeah, sort of like the end of the film where it, I think it's sort of brilliantly constructed because there's obviously a lot of clues right from that I caught on the second viewing, like right from where you enter where miles is sent back to the new earth. And then he's followed by Miguel and Scarlet spider and Jessica drew. Um, it, you can pick up on it right away if you're paying attention, but you know, I wasn't that locked in, I guess. And I think most viewers probably won't be immediately super locked in to it, but I, I love the construction of that sort of, arc that's sort of the last 30 minutes of the film 
where you have Miles on Earth 42, you have Gwen trying to make her way back to Earth um, 1610, the one that Miles is from, and you have Miguel and Jess and Scarlet Spider trying to find Miles on Earth 1610 to stop him from alerting and saving his dad. And the sort of like narrative unfurling, uh, peeling back of the onion to show you that they're actually in different places and different universes. And then who captures him, right? When you see uncle Aaron and you see him get, you know, knocked out by the prowler and you see Gwen start to use her new gift from Hobie or whatever, after she sort of reconciles with her father, like it, it feels like it's coming towards a crescendo in the film you know, on a personal level, like I felt like that's where the movie was going to end. I wasn't surprised by that. Like once we got to that point and it just sort of had me completely jazzed. Like I, I liked the development. I thought it was, it was really engaging because of the way that they had constructed that part of the narrative. And when sort of all the truths that it has to give you are sort of laid out plainly, I think, I think it actually is a quite a satisfying way to cliffhang you for the next film. Um, if that is the right way to put it again, I, I was ready to watch two and a half more hours of Spider-Verse like right after. Like they could have given me the whole thing, just like they could have done that with Dune back in twenty. Yeah, I said the same thing about Dune. Yeah, hundred yeah, percent. Like I was ready to go, sign me up. Um, but yeah, I was like I was totally locked in the whole time. And I think also when kind of like the, at the beginning of the film, you know, you really get the Daniel Pemberton score amping up in the last few scenes of the movie as Gwen puts together this you know, the group that includes Peter B. Parker, Spider-Man Noir, Spider-Ham, Penny Parker, Hobie, and whoever else. There was some other people there, right? Oh, Amanda Stenberg's character, the other Spider-Woman that she plays. Yeah, Margo or something. Margo Hess or something like that. Um, Yeah, so like that, I think that that all works really well for me. And, you know, we we have all of our spider people set up we know where all the pieces are on the table right now. And um, again, I just thought it was really narratively constructed well to sort of crescendo to the end of the film. Yeah. I mean, it is like, you know, again, you could take the most cynical view. Oh, well, this is just, we're just setting it up for the next film. Right. Which obviously is just, you know, complete hogwash if that's what you actually believe. Um, But even if it is just set up, like, at the end of the movie, I'm like, you know, I'm with you. I'm like, heck yeah, let's run run film three right now. I'm ready to go. Oh, so 100%. Yeah. It succeeded in being set up. Like, even at the very base level, uh, you know, it's got me hyped for that third film again. Maybe yeah. I'm concerned about what happens after that, but, um, you know, I'm not even, I'm going to try not to think about it. Put that. your cares at ease for a little bit, Scott. We have a year now, so. <laughs> we are in good hands for, for the time yeah. being. Um, it seems that way. So. Yeah, smooth sailing ahead for now. Can we talk uh, about Kemp Powers being a co-director on this movie? This is like one yeah. of the crazy things. Like, uh, So Phil Lord did co-write. He was one of the co-writers on the first film. Miller was not, though. I forget Miller's first name, so I'm just saying Miller. Um, is it Christopher Miller? Yeah, Chris Miller. I thought it was Chris Miller. I was like, that, doesn't sound, that sounds too generic. Uh, Chris Miller did not co-write the first one with him, but they do co-write this film together. They are they they wrote both two and three together at the same time, and that's why they split the film. They're like, this is too much, can't do it. But then they have a completely different set of directors. So it was like Peter Ramsey, I think Bob Perchetti, and Rodney yeah. Rothman were the three directors on the first one. And then they bring in three completely new people: Joaquin Dos Santos, 
Kent Powers, who is like a co-writer on the film Soul and also wrote One Night in Miami back in 2020, like kind of crazy for him to then segue into this. And then Justin K. Thompson, who I'm not familiar with. Like, I just think it was like, it, I feel like it's like kind of incredible that this film pulls it off. Like it completely changes its directors. I know animation's different than than live action filmmaking. I understand that it's such a different process because you're not like quote unquote shooting scenes, right? Like the roles are so much more fluid. I'd imagine in animation where how you storyboard something or you visualize something and then you realize it and you can iterate on that feels quite different than what it looks like in live action. I think just narratively the flow, the workflow might be a bit different, but it just seems like kind of remarkable that they were able to pull off bringing in not necessarily creative talent in the most literal sense, but pretty different talent for the film overall to direct it and sort of guide this ship into Harbor at least for the first part of this two-parter. But I, I was just, I just felt like that was kind of remarkable that they were able to, to do that. Um, and frankly, like, I don't think any of these people have directed anything. I don't think, I don't think any of these three directors have ever directed a movie before, which is like pretty crazy. Well, Kent Powers is credited as a co-director on soul. So, Oh, he's credited as a co-director. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's unclear, obviously what role he had alongside Pete doctor. Pete doctor but, yeah. Um, you know, he, he is given a credit there. So he, Ha- presumably has some experience. Yeah, no, look, that, that makes I mean, okay, that makes a lot. Maybe that makes a little bit more sense then, because like, I mean, I thought Soul was you know visually super interesting, um, especially for Pixar, who who I think has a very specific style that they usually adhere to. Um, but I thought they did something pretty cool stuff with with that. But yeah, so he had a little bit of experience with that. But like, I mean, yeah, just remarkable. I mean, I just thought it was so remarkable that these these three people could come together and and sort of just direct their their first movie. Like I, I'm just looking at Joaquin Dos Santos's Wikipedia page right now. I think he's contributed to a lot of uh, other projects, but I don't think that he, like, I guess he, he was the showrunner for an animated series called Voltron legacy defender, but he's it's never a collaborative done... effort. It's clearly a collaborative yeah. effort. And I imagine it would have to be uh, like, I, yeah. there's just no way you could put something this like this together, especially not on the scale without sure, sure you know a whole team of people remarkable stuff sync with each other it is favorite scene or moment scott oh my gosh so i've had such i've had such a hard time um picking which one i i haven't narrowed down to two i feel like we've talked a lot about the opening sequence and i mean like the opening sequence when like she's going crazy on the drums like that's i like that whole scene is like sort of like just plays over and over my head but the actual scene that i think is just sort of had my jaw closest to the floor when I was watching is when they're in miles. So miles and Gwen are in his in earth 1610 and they're on top of the Brooklyn bank, what bank tower or whatever it is. And there, the, there's the moment where the camera just sort of follows Gwen and it sort of inverts and she sits, you know, vertically sits on the bottom of, of this tower and it just sort of like displays in a wide shot, the Manhattan skyline inverted. And there's a couple variations of that shot over the course of the scene. Um, once miles joins her and there's an even like wider angle of the skyline that's not inverted. And just, I was just sort of, it was just breathtaking shot that they were able to create and sort of the moment where it just sort of follows her around and pivots the camera um, on the axis to follow her to invert. I was just like, whoa, <laughs> can't believe they did this. It's just like wild stuff. Yeah. As far as like a substantive moment goes for me, it's like 
it has to be that scene when they're in Earth 980, whatever, um, and Miguel O'Hara is walking them through, like, the basically the reveal of what the movie is actually about and the canon. And we're seeing all of these moments, like, you know, again, we see some clips of Tobey Maguire with Uncle Ben. We see Andrew Garfield. We see all of it there. Um, and... Um, you know, again, he's just explaining how Miles is the anomaly and, and just the excitement of me and the audience watching that and realizing where the movie was taking the story was um, was my favorite part of the movie. On sure. a more fun level, there are so many references in this movie, Scott. You oh, sure. Earlier that, you know, you'll never catch everything on the first watch. You'll, probably, you'll never catch anything on the second watch, right? Like, it, it demands rewatches, but... One thing which I did catch on the first watch, uh, because it is a reference to my favorite Spider-Man movie, and most people will catch this one. It's one of the more obvious ones, but uh, my favorite Spider-Man movie is Spider-Man 2, and uh, at one point, the spot when he has figured out how, how to jump from multiverse, from universe to universe, basically using his powers, using his spots, mm-hmm. um, he remarks, the power of the multiverse in the palm of my hand, yeah. which of course is a reference to Doc Ock's famous line of the power of the sun in the palm of my hand. So um, that just made me smile because I love Spider-Man too, and I also love this movie. I thought you were going to say you love the Venom reference. I thought that was your favorite Spider-Man movie now. Yes, of course. I, I Thank yeah. you for bringing that up. Yes, yeah. of course. At one point, he busts through into the convenience store, which uh, is... Venom's haunt, and we even have—I uh, don't can't remember what her name is—but the the convenience store clerk there, um, who is Venom's friend. Um, yeah, can't help you there. I don't know. Don't know. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. that was a delight. That was a delight. More, more Venom, please. Uh, going Le- Le- Lego Spider Man is what? Did you like Lego Universe? Great. That that was one of the hardest I laughed for sure. I mean, it is, sure. it is a funny movie again. It, it's Lord and Miller, like they have their own style of humor, which um, just yeah. works for me, but. Let's put a score on it, Scott. Out of 10, what do you give this movie? It's a 10 for me. I uh, absolutely loved it. I think I, I I so vividly remember us both giving Into the Spider-Verse a 9.8. I think, yeah. <laughs> I think it's like one of the like one of the most like deranged things we've done on the podcast, probably. Um, I don't necessarily not stand by it. It's just like kind of kind of just silly um, in retrospect that we did that. But uh, I'm giving this one a 10. I think, you know, whether or not it's a perfect film shrug i don't care it's one of those things where it just sort of instantly watching it i knew this was going to be probably one of my favorite animated films my favorite one of my favorite comic book movies out there and of course we have to we have to let it age to make sure that that is true but you know four days after seeing it for the first time having seen it twice now it feels like it's just gonna live you know it's gonna live in my head and, and i will say rewatching into the spider-verse right before this was something where there's at least one or two scenes in that movie that reference earth like, that reference the number 42 um yeah. coming coming from that they sort of give you a piece of that i think in the actual archival footage they use in across the spider-verse but it was like kind of crazy to be because i watched it you know less than 24 hours before i watched across the spider-verse being like oh wow like it was there like it was right there and uh, and someone was even pointing out to me too that the spider, when Miles is bitten, glitches. Um, yes, which gl- indicates yes. that it is not from that universe, of course, which we find out in this movie. It does. I noticed that too on the most recent time that I watched it, and it glitches in the form of like a larger mm-hmm. spider or whatever. Um, 
kind of crazy, just like crazy stuff. One last comment that I have to make, I, I'm giving this a 10, but before we hand it over to you, it's just like the thought of like, and I said this in my Letterboxd review that I that I posted, it's like No Way Home was this incredible like multiversal Spider-Man movie with multiple Spider-Man that sort of like was reliant on its on its like conceit of multiple Spider-Man to like actually be successful as a film. And like it sort of bet banked on everyone just going nuts that like Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield are in the, in the movie to like actually be successful. And you get, of course, like Otto Octavius, like you get Alfred Molina, you get all these other villains too from Spider-Man past. Like, and obviously there are, there are that many references and more in across the Spider-Verse, but like the film does not feel like it depends on the presence of like those references to succeed as a movie. And in that sense, I suppose no way home walked or crawled so that across the Spider-Verse could run and it ran its way to a 10 for me. Yeah, Scott, I mean, I, I had debated, do I put a rating on it again because of some of the, I didn't put a rating on it on Letterboxd and some of the comments I made about just wanting to see how it plays out. But you're right when you say, you know, we had this with Dune, we've had this with other movies, right? And I, I rated Dune. Um, and sure. so for that reason, what I, what I will say is, my my score is obviously very much subject to change. Sure, as scores always are. Like I watched yes. Parasite for the first time, thought it was like an eight, and then watched it a second time, I'm like, well, this is a ten. Like, yeah, forget it. You know, but I am giving it an eight point nine. Um, I okay. do think the movie obviously could go up depending on what happens in the third film. Could go down depending on what happens in the third film. Sure. I will also say because I haven't mentioned it yet, it could go up when I watch it with better a better sound mix, because I did have the problem that other people have been having um, mm-hmm. where the dialogue and music, the, the ratio is off at certain points. And also the volume was just low for the whole movie. So I know there are lines and, and moments that I missed that, you know, half of Toby's dialogue. <laughs> yeah. It was not that extreme, but um, sure. But anyway, that so it, it could also be subject to change when I hear that the, the correct version of the movie. But anyway, eight point nine, loved it. You know, in the top echelon of movies for this year, undeniably so. Um, yeah, that'll do it for our review of Spider Man Across the Spider Verse. Scott, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to have uh, some casting news. Uh, so stay tuned. We'll be right back. <laughs> back to this episode of some like it scott scott a couple of new projects being announced that we uh we're going to talk about here um and continuing right in line with our our main topic of today which was spider-man across the spider-verse a film written by phil lord and chris miller of course the team behind the jump street films behind the lego films behind this the spider-verse films now uh they have a new project in the works why don't you tell us more about it yeah so obviously Lord and Miller probably best known for their animated features and their work on those. They did, however, spend at least some period of time uh, co-directing 
solo a Star Wars story? Did they act? Were they the people who got the final credit on directing that movie? I can't even remember. No, uh, Ron Howard got the final credit. On got it. Okay. Solo. But they well, have the Jump Street films, of course, too, which they. Did. Yeah, well, I was going to mention the Jump Street films. Yeah. They have the Jump Street films uh, as well, but I think they have not co-directed or worked on a live-action film since Solo: A Star Wars Story. Since they their time spent on that, because I think Twenty Two okay. Jump Street was before Solo, uh, which was. was yeah, which was twenty eighteen. So yeah, so they are going back behind the live-action camera lens for a project called Project Hair. It's so funny that the project is called Project Project Hail Mary, which is the adaptation of Andy Weir's uh, most recent novel or one of his more recent novels. Uh, he's the author of The Martian, and the film is going to star Ryan Gosling. And it is about the story of Gosling's sort of lone astronaut, very Ad Astra-like in terms of Brad Pitt's role in that, um, traveling to another star with this mission to save Earth. It sounds like just on a you know a one sentence log line like a mix of something like an Ad Astra and an Interstellar, two films that we were pretty big fans of, I think overall, and it's being directed by Lord and Miller. It's starring Gosling. Very interesting that they're choosing to go this direction. Like I'm I'm intrigued by it. I wonder what the tone of the film is going to be. Like that log line makes it sound like a pretty somber drama in a way, but. Lord and Miller's sensibilities aren't really entirely in the drama category, I'd say. So I'm curious if it will be a dramedy with comedic flavor, which, you know, I guess arguably Solo was. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting project. I think Gosling's really sort of on a hot streak right now or sort of building building towards a hot streak maybe is a better way to put it. And if uh, this indication is anything, then... Maybe, maybe we're going to be done sooner with Spider-Man across, uh, Beyond the Spider-Verse if they're going to be working on this. Because as I was, we were sort of saying in the last part, you know, the one of the unique workflow differences between animation and live action is that as writers, they're still working on the project as it's being made, right? Unlike with a live action film in animation, you can keep writing and rewriting things to death. Can't do that so much in a live action. I don't know. I don't know if they're, if they're going to get writing credits for this one, if they're writing project Hail Mary or not. So it'll be interesting to see, but if they are taking on another project uh, that at least seems to be in the near future, then hopefully that's a good sign for the state that beyond the spider verse is in. Or it means that somebody else is going to take over spider verse and then it's not going to turn out well, but I, I hear what you're saying. Anything is possible. Sure, it's it, it is possible, but I would be surprised. Yes, uh, I, I'm with you. And, and look, Lord and Miller have yet to put out anything that I don't love yet. Apparently, Drew Goddard is writing this movie, which okay. I mean, I I would prefer for Lord and Miller written the film because I think their writing is what they do the best. But I mean, Drew Goddard obviously had a an interesting film a few years ago with uh, with Bad Times at the El Royale, which I did enjoy, and I believe mm-hmm. he wrote that as well i'm sure he did um so he you know he has shown his ability when it comes to writing um and gosling i mean look we know he has already been in one of these space movies he was in first man a movie that um you know we were a little bit mixed on um, and his performance at least for me was one of the reasons we're a little bit mixed on uh on the movie i have been on record many times as saying that i think ryan gosling is much 
more compelling of a screen performer to me when he's doing something like he's going to be doing in about a month in Barbie uh, in a comedic role. I don't know how much emotional range he has to offer um, dramatically. So if the film calls for him to, you know, to, to offer a lot of emotion, could be hit or miss. We'll see. But I think Gordon Miller, it, it sounds like it will, frankly, but uh, yeah, if, if Drew, like you said, if Drew Goddard is writing this thing, if it's, tonally similar to the martian which i assume it will be since it's the same author there's gonna be some emoting i think that's gonna be happening yeah but it also may be more you know a lighthearted too because you yeah. know the martian definitely had its fair share of comedic moments yeah. and uh you know again lord and miller every one of their films has you know a healthy dose of, of comedy in it whether they're they're writing it or not i would be Surprised to see them just ever even di- just direct a straight up drama, but um, only time will tell, I suppose. Scott, mm-hmm. on my end of the news um, news section for today's episode, you know, Scott, we always seem to talk about projects that we are excited for them to come out in this section of the the show. Um, maybe we don't spend as much time for for obvious reason on movies and on projects that we are not that excited about or not interested in, but uh, there is a, a film that was announced in the last couple of weeks that I feel I have to say some words about, um, even though not only am I not excited for it, I will not be seeing the film because I um, recently declared last year that this director uh, was going on the list, right, of people whose movies I will not see. And that's because he directed the worst film of uh of last year for me which was amsterdam and more importantly than that he uh is a a terrible person by all accounts and um has probably done some very very heinous things and should not not only should not be allowed to make another film but should probably be in jail uh but that is david o russell of course um the five-time oscar nominee uh gives me the shivers to say that but um he uh, is getting another film to make. Again, I don't really know why they're letting him do this again after Amsterdam, but I guess it's because he's a five-time Oscar nominee, um, perhaps. Um, and maybe he has more hits than misses, although, you know, again, Amsterdam was a pretty colossal, catastrophic mess. But anyway, this film is going to be a biopic of sorts, Scott, and it is about, of all people, John Madden, um, the legendary, of course, former coach of the Los Angeles Raiders, Super Bowl winning coach, um, and then more, perhaps more famously, a longtime commentator and the inspiration behind the Madden video games. And it seems like uh, that this particular film is going to focus um, more on the video game aspect and on the sort of development of the Madden video game, perhaps inspired by air recently right it's got a movie about sports business essentially about a sort of big influential business deal in the world of sports um being negotiated and finalized um maybe that's it seems like that's the area that david or russell is also going to tackle with the john madden story again i won't find out for myself but um Will Ferrell, Scott, is the name that has been tapped to play John Madden, which, again, is, I guess it's kind of bizarre, but 
you know, on, on another level, maybe not. I mean, you expect I mean, he's also Will famous Fer- for a Harry Carey impression on SNL. Yeah, that's like, what it's say. not like it's but that you, crazy. You expect Will Ferrell to get up there and do some very exaggerated version of John Madden, right? Which, um, yeah. you know, John that's Madden's true. a big, a pretty larger than life character, right? There's definitely, you know, a sort of hair and makeup voice job that you can do to play John Madden. That maybe is what you would expect Will Ferrell to do. If this was going to be a more uh, straight-laced biopic, I'd be surprised if, if you know, with Will Ferrell being in it, like, again, in that role, I'm not sure that he's capable of doing that um, in a part like John Madden. But it's David O. Russell, and so he's probably going to throw all of his stupid screwball comedy in there, um, and we'll probably give Will Ferrell plenty of room and leeway to to do his shtick. Um yeah, I just I don't think I think this film's so unnecessary. Um, I really liked Air. I don't know if the story here is even anywhere near as interesting as that. And certainly, I don't have any faith in David O. Russell as I did have faith in Ben Affleck and you know and Matt Damon in the lead role um, to to put together a satisfying film uh, in this instance. But who knows? Maybe it gets nominated for an Oscar. I'll never know. I mean, I'll I mean, know you'll know whether it gets nominated for an Oscar. For an Oscar but yeah. I just won't know whether it actually earned that or not. But I will assume that it probably did not because it's David O. Russell. He's on the list, Scott. Any thoughts on this? I'm so curious. What does it take for you to watch a movie by Adam McKay or David O. Russell? Like, how many people have to come to you and be like, yeah, they've sinned in the past, but they've you, come, you back asked to, me that- come back to Christ? You asked me this before. You were like, if Paul and I put David O. Russell's next movie as like number one of the year or whatever, I said, and I believe my response was that I would just jump off a bridge if that happened. And I think I'd probably stand by that. I, the point of them being on the list is there is nothing that someone can do, Scott. Even if you use it against me in a championship match in trivia, I will not watch it. I have to have standards. I have to have put my line in the sand. Somewhere. Are you breaking your I, standards though when everyone tells you it's a good movie? Is that actually breaking yes. your standard, though? The reason yes. that you've set the standard because, is because they're not because good it would not give me any pleasure to enjoy a movie made by David O. Russell. All right, that, that sounds like a point to bring up with your therapist in the future. <laughs> perhaps it is. Uh, yeah. Again, <laughs> uh, perhaps I'm being hypocritical because, again, I have enjoyed a number of Woody Allen films, and you know, Roman Polanski. Uh, he's made some good movies too, but um, Mr. Weinstein. Anyway, I, I have a new outlook on life at this point, Scott. Uh, and it's so you're not watching not any more watching, Woody Allen movies? Are you dropping all of them? Yeah, I'm not going to watch any more Woody Allen movies. I, I will raise my hand right here okay. and promise to you that I'm not going to watch any new released Woody Allen Okay, well, I'm not talking about new releases, Scott. I'm talking about <laughs> Well, that's what statement. I thought you meant. But... No, no, no. Anyway. You can't go back and watch any Woody Allen movies now. No, I'm kidding. You watch whatever you want to watch. I, Scott. I know. Uh, we're going down a dangerous path here, Scott. I think it's time to wrap up for the episode. Sure. I don't care about this movie. David O. Russell did me dirty last year, and uh, I'll have to, they'll have to convince me that I should watch this movie. Yeah. Uh, all right, Scott. Where can our listeners find you on social media? At Shelton2013, where you can see me liking and retweeting all the praise for Spider Man Across the Spider Verse. And I am at Scarvey Dent on all social media where you can find me liking and retweeting all of the Eras Tour content um, from sure. this past weekend and 
weekends to come. Stay tuned um, for his next I Have Fallen to My Knees tweet, quote tweeting some Taylor Swift concert. When the surprise songs yeah. come out, it's actually, as we're recording, we're probably going to find out in about 20 minutes or so what the surprise songs are for tonight. But Okay, um, Godspeed. All right, Scott, uh, that'll do it for this episode of Something Like It, Scott. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast. If you have and you'd like to support us, don't forget about our Patreon page at patreon.com slash media plug pods. Uh, we have a bunch of tiers over there. But even if you can't support us over there, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, like, do all of the things that you do on your preferred podcast app. And we hope you'll be back for our next episode of the podcast on which we'll be, we will be reviewing the latest film in the Transformers franchise, Transformers Rise of the Beasts. But until then, for Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you down the road.